All right, good to go. Oh, I hear my echo. I guess we're good. Awesome, great to be here this morning and uh, worshiping together and just uh, turning our hearts to God. We're in Nehemiah chapter 6 and the first little bit of chapter 7 today, so if you take your Bibles, uh, turn with me there and uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. Uh, We thank you for the beauty around us. We thank you for the world that you've created. And Lord, as we were just singing, help us to turn our eyes to you. Uh, As the author of Hebrews says, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, uh, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Let us not lose heart. Consider him who endured opposition. And Lord, today, as, as we look at the tail end of Nehemiah's wall-building ministry and we see him transition, uh, Lord, through it all, it's, it's never an easy thing to follow your vision and to follow your calling. And so, Lord, as we look at this and as we consider how we are called to live out uh, the kingdom of God in our midst, uh, this Pentecost Sunday, the, that day when the Holy Spirit descended, when um, old men would, uh, as, as Peter quoted from Joel, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will uh, see visions, your sons and daughters will prophesy, and, and the Holy Spirit created the church. And the gospel went global. The the curse of Babel was reversed as people heard the good news of Jesus Christ in their own languages. And a great sense of unity began to happen. Not just because people got along, but because the Holy Spirit was creating a new people of God. And as Paul reminds us, it doesn't have to do with Jew or Gentile, slave or free. All are one in Christ Jesus. So Lord, as we consider your word today, as we consider the story of Nehemiah, as we consider the journey that you had for him and the outcomes that came along with that, speak to our hearts and our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Nehemiah, the the story so far, right? Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. He is serving in Babylon, actually kind of really close to modern-day Kuwait, really, you know, a long way away from Israel. And and his brother comes to him and he says, you know, Jerusalem's not in a good, good place. The people of God aren't in a good place. There are, they're, they're in shame. And this breaks Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah goes, what, you know, how, oh. He, he goes into months, four months of prayer and fasting because God has moved his heart. And as he's praying and he's fasting, he's thinking and he's planning and he's, he's going, what, what God will you have me do in this situation? It's, it's so far from here and yet it's so close to my heart. And so Nehemiah, as he's praying, as he's fasting for four months, starts formulating a plan. And then he gets the opportunity and the king, he's in the king's presence one day and the king says, what's wrong, Nehemiah? This 
that you're not sick. This can't be anything but a sadness of the heart. Nehemiah says, yeah, you're right. Here's the problem. The, the, the city of my fathers and my ancestors lies in ruins. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Its walls have been torn apart. And, and it just breaks my heart that this is the situation. The king says, well, what do you want to do about it? And so Nehemiah says, well, here's my plan. Here's the, here's the what I'm going to do about it. If, if you would bless me, if, if you would give me letters to this, uh, this person who takes care of your forests and, and, and this person who takes care of uh, the, the, uh, the, the trade route uh, and, and you would give me safe passage, I'm going to go and I am going to uh, help the people of Israel get back on their feet, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and remove this shame and disgrace from the people of God. The king says, great, let's do it. You do that. How long is it going to take? We don't know how long Nehemiah said at that point, but he's gone. He arrives in Jerusalem and he, 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 he doesn't go to work right away, does he? he? He takes some time. He surveys the walls. He goes out. He's, he's planning secretly. I had not told them what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem just yet. The vision was growing. It was stirring. It needed some time. And then Nehemiah said, okay, this is it. Time to go. It's go time. Four months of prayer and planning, at least two months of travel, a few days of, of seeing the, the everything firsthand. And then Nehemiah goes public and he says, this is what I believe God has laid on my heart to do. And it ignited a movement. And the people of God rose up and they began rebuilding, they began repairing, they began restoring the city in which they've been living in for decades that was just an absolute mess. And no sooner had they started than the opposition came. Because every time God moves, opposition happens. Every time God gives a vision to his people and his leaders to move the ball forward, to, to see the kingdom advance, the opposition starts. And it comes from the powers around us and it comes from the family within us. Because boy, oh boy, do we not like to change much. We like to keep things the way they were and boy, if we can get back to the way things were, that would be just the, the best thing ever. But Nehemiah is like, it's, it shouldn't go back to the way things were because the way things were created the mess in the first place. And we're gonna really see that next week. We get to the end of the book. So Nehemiah starts building, the opposition starts ramping up, and we've been seeing this for the last few weeks, how Sanballat and Tobiah have been pushing back against Nehemiah. They've been threatening the people of Israel. They've been, they've been planning, they've been, you know, in the background they've been doing stuff, and in the foreground they've been doing stuff, and the people of God themselves were starting to get disheartened about this. Uh, because it's been generations now where this kind of thing has happened. You go back to Ezra and you read about how they came and they started rebuilding the temple. But, you know, these guys, they said, hey, wait a minute, there's an edict about this and you shouldn't be doing that. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, sorry, we should stop. And over and over again, they were easily discouraged and distracted from the mission God gave them. But then Nehemiah comes along and how does he respond to it? God has given me a vision for this people and I'm going to lead them into it, regardless of the opposition. 
And that's really where Nehemiah even, even ends. <laughs> he keeps going because he is convinced of the clarity of his call. He is convicted deeply that the mission he has is from God himself and he sticks to it regardless of the opposition. And it happens. He gets the job done. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15 to chapter 7, verse 4. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Remember, the, the, the first uh, return from exile was decades ago. And people have been living in a, in a broken down, beaten up city for decades. And Nehemiah comes on the scene with God's vision, with God's purposes, with God's provision, and the job gets done in 52 days. But the next verse is really what the celebration should be about. And when all our enemies heard of it, they all, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. When we follow God's mission and vision for us, the result shouldn't be look at what you did, but look at what God has done. Not look at what, what the camp has done. Not look at what the gospel chapel has done. Not look at what First Baptist has done. Not look at what River Valley's done. Not, not look at what for, any of the churches have done, but look at what God has accomplished. There should be no other explanation for the existence of the church than the mighty working of God himself. They perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of God. Who perceived it? The nations around them and all their enemies. All the people who were trying to distract them and saying, hey, you shouldn't do this, had to come to the conclusion that God had done it. How we live out the gospel speaks volumes. Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter five, verse 11, you know, that they may see your good deeds and praise your father who is in heaven. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12, live such good lives among the, the pagans, among the Gentiles, that they would see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven on the day he visits us. That our lives and what we do and what we pursue and how we invest our, our lives point people to Jesus. That our lives are only explainable as a mighty work of God. They perceived that this had been accomplished with the help of God. God's purposes for his glory. Next two verses. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehohananan, say that ten times fast, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Uh, this is going to come up a lot more next week. We're going to get into chapter 13 next week. And Tobiah, we're going to find, is living in the temple. Another problem. Anyway, we'll come back to that. And 
They also spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. Well, this is an interesting little, you know, tidbit on Tobiah. So Tobiah is not only, you know, a, a hired guy, a, a servant of Geshem, the, the, the Arab, but he's, he's also related <laughs> by intermarriage to some of the nobles in Jerusalem. And so these nobles in Jerusalem, who Nehemiah has been kind of working alongside of, they've been sending letters back and forth behind the scenes. And they come to Nehemiah and say, hey, you know, Tobiah's not really such a bad guy. He's actually pretty good. Nehemiah's like, are you serious? Like, can I show you the letters he sent me? <laughs> can, can I tell you about the prophet that he hired to undermine us? Can, can I tell you, go back the last few chapters and see all the stuff that Tobiah has done to try to undermine God's purposes. But right here, the nobles of Judah are supporting the opposition. Now, I know this never happens in the church. Right? Nobody ever comes to you and says, hey, you know, I know these guys are giving you a lot of grief over here, but really, they're, they're really good. I know they have a totally different agenda, uh, but they're, they're really good guys. And I tell you, this last year, Ben and I have got some pretty nasty emails over this last year. And yet people are like, well, they're so godly people. Like, yeah, I, you don't even want to read the emails I've gotten. See, opposition comes from all directions in many forms and with many motives. But in order to push forward on the mission and the purpose of God, we as leaders, myself, Ben, the elders, and, and us as a church, we need to be absolutely convinced and clear on our call. We're here to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to help people follow Jesus. We have to be deeply convicted of that vision that God has put this on our hearts or else the internal struggles and the external pressures will always distract us and we'll be just trying to put out fires left, right, and center. Because God's purposes always create opposition. I Name a biblical leader that doesn't face a lot of opposition. <laughs> right? It's not like, hey, I'm going to follow God's principles and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey God's call on my life and boy, it's easy. <laughs> it's never easy. It's always full of conflict. It's always full of pushback. It's always full of tension. I mean, Jesus didn't even, he got out of the water and what the first thing that happened? You know, Satan tempts him to give up. Find another way. Find an easier way. Find a way that doesn't lead to the cross. Don't follow God's vision. It'll be way too painful for you. And then throughout his life, you know, uh, early on in Mark's gospel, Jesus' mothers and brothers, they come to get, take charge of him because they think he'd lost his mind. They thought he was absolutely insane. His own family, I mean, his own mom, right? Mary. I mean, I mean, since we like to venerate Mary, uh, probably not as much as the Catholics, but we... We don't like to think that Mary kind of lost the, the vision. But here she is in Mark saying, 
my son's lose, lost his brain. Like, like he's, he's, he's losing it. The opposition continued throughout his ministry. And Jesus told the disciples, John chapter 16, if the world hated you, it's, world hates you, don't be surprised, it hated me too. <laughs> if you follow Jesus, you're going to end up in times of seasons of conflict with the world around you and the world inside you. Because the world isn't just an external thing. The world is also just our comfortable way of living the way we've always want to live and nobody can tell us what to do and I am my own boss and Jesus says, hey, you got to lay that down. If you want to follow me, pick up your cross. It's a path that's not easily traveled. Opposition comes in many forms from many angles with many motives. We need to be crystal clear on our calling. Nehemiah was a man who went to prayer always. Every time we read that the opposition came, I prayed and then we did this. He was a man of prayer and a man of action. He was a man of scripture. You read his prayer in the chapter one and it's just soaked with the language of the Psalms. He was convinced of the vision God has put on his heart. He said that in the first two chapters and he says it, Right in verse 5 of chapter 7 here, then God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Now, this is, this, he's going to kind of undermine some of the background noise that's going on here. This is a very key thing. But then Nehemiah, he was clear on his call, he was convinced of the vision, but he was also very consistent in his character. A man who went to God and pointed back to God. And just before our passage today, he, he was praying this. As, as, as more opposition came, he said, the purpose was he hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that he could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. The rest of the prophets. People who were like saying, hey, I've got a word from God for you. <laughs> Sometimes it's the spiritual spin that's opposition as well. Be very clear of your call. Be very convinced of the vision. Be very consistent in character. That will stand up when the opposition comes. Well, the wall is done. <clears throat> what does Nehemiah do next? Chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Now, when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot and while they are still standing, guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been built. So a couple of things that are happening right here. Nehemiah has 
spent the last 52 days working on this building project. He's gotten to the end of it. But the vision is much bigger. It's not just the rebuilding of the walls that's important. It is the rebuilding of the people of God that's important. And this is going to be the much bigger challenge that's coming down. The, the wall's a short-term win and a long-term strategy. It's a partial but very significant step. And for the next step to happen, the problems inside the walls needed to be addressed. The scars of the exile remained. Why the population decrease in the rubble and the desolation? Verse four. Why were those things a reality? Well, we gotta go back to Deuteronomy 28. God said, you know, if you follow me and you, you obey the covenant, then I'm going to bless you and your cities will be full and they'll, you'll have houses to live in and, and life will be good and solid and stable. Here's the people of God and they've, you know, they've rebuilt a wall, but there's desolation. It's an empty city with houses destroyed. And in this verse, Nehemiah is reminding the people, reminding the reader that the exile happened. Jerusalem was destroyed because of the disobedience of the people to the covenant of God. You know, when we walk in disobedience to God's call in our life, then scars happen. Scars happen and scars remain. Here the people of God, they've come back from exile. God is restoring his people, but they are living in the midst of the brokenness that was caused by disobedience. And unlike the conquest where they settled into cities and homes they did not build and vineyards they did not plant, this time they got to rebuild it. Stone by stone, brick by brick. They have to replant the fields tree by tree because our decisions and our sin has consequences. God offers forgiveness full and free, but that does not mean the scars go away. One other thing we see here too is that Nehemiah knew that this wasn't a job he could do alone. This is a much deeper job. Here he doesn't say, okay, now I've done this part, now I've got to do the next part, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. He says, okay, this part's kind of done for me, and now I need some other guys to help take this up. And the team starts growing at this point. I got, I got my brother, he's a good guy, and this, this guy who's been the governor in the Citadel, well, he's, he's a God-fearing guy, and so we're gonna, I'm going to put them in charge of the city. And, and then we need to appoint, you know, he says, I've appointed the, the Levites and the singers and the, and the gatekeepers, so appointing leaders in key positions where they have some authority and then giving them some clear directions as to how to do that is very important. You see, we can't navigate or, or push the deeper change on our own. And Nehemiah knows this. Remember, he's still the new guy in town. <laughs> and he's only one man. Hannah and I had, if this is the same brother that came to him in chapter one, he's, he's been there the whole time and he's, he's in that ruling class, the nobles, and Hananiah, governor of the castle. For he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. 
The right leaders are not those who have a family connection, as in with Tobiah. The right leaders are not those who have financial uh, wherewithal or, or input or clout. The men that we need in leadership are those who are God-fearing more than many, more than most. Because two things are, are causing fear here. We either fear God or we fear man. That's what Nehemiah was up against here. Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. They sent these prophets to make me afraid. It's, it's repeated a couple times in chapter 6. They were trying to instill the fear of man into Nehemiah. And Nehemiah's response, I will fear God. Because the fear of man easily derails the vision of God. And God's, you, you could say, yeah, God's purposes will be accomplished. He'll do whatever it takes to make his purposes accomplished now. God also always works through people. And when he gives us a responsibility and yet we, we fall into a fear of, of others, we fear, fear oh no, this, he's, trying to, he's trying to cause a problem so that he can undermine my character. <laughs> uh, he's sending letters to, to, to let me know that he could undermine me. Nehemiah's response, I will fear God, not man. And that's, I think, the key thing, to move forward in God's vision for his people. The fear of God has to overtake the fear of man, the fear of failure, the fear of expense, the fear of the unknown, the fear of the different. It really all comes down to an emotional response. <laughs> See, these op opponents were looking to get under Nehemiah's skin and poison his heart. Proverbs says, guard your heart for it is the well spring of life. As we move forward, as God's purposes become clearer for what we are to be and do in the boundary region in the next four to five years, We must fear God more than anything else. We must search for his heart and his purposes and his vision more than anything else. And as we step into pursuing things that are different, as we maybe pursue things that we've never done before, there will be fear of failure. There will be fear of pushback. There will be fear of conflict. And actually, all those things will happen. God's vision never goes forward without conflict because we're in a battle. We need to know clearly that God has called us as a family for his purposes in these times. And the world is very different now than it was last year. And the year before, and the year before that, and the year before that. And that means that how we do ministry has to change. 
God's purpose is that we help people follow Jesus. We help one another follow Jesus. I'm more and more convinced that can't happen on a Sunday morning only. It's a great family gathering. I treat it as a huddle for the team to go out and run the play during the week. Life on life, investing in one another, and being broken by the brokenness around us. Not angry about the rules, but broken by the brokenness. The devastated lives, the hurting people. And it's not just outside the church, a lot of it's inside too. We just have a good way of hiding it better. That last verse is somewhat haunting. The walls were built. but the city was deserted and the houses were empty and destroyed still. And there was a lot of work to do yet. The rest of Nehemiah talks about that work and it's the hardest work yet. Building a wall is easy. Repairing people is very, very difficult. That's the long game. Nehemiah spends the next 12 years in Jerusalem. And then he goes back because he had a deal with the king. And then he comes back and then we get the end of the story. So next week we'll look at the end of the story. What I want to leave you with today is this. When God's people pursue God's vision... Things can happen quickly. And the glory of God can be revealed. And conflict will come. And leaders need to rise up that fear God more than man. Lord, as we go into this next few weeks, Lord, as we finish off Nehemiah, as we get together next week uh, for our AGM after the service. Lord, as we think and we pray and we ask you what you would have us to be and do as your people. Lord, I thank you for this last year of really a deep reset. We needed it. Your people needed to realize that that church is not a building and it's not a program. It is a people of God on the mission of God. And Lord, if we haven't learned that yet, please, please convict our hearts deeply of that. Lord, if if we're hanging on to the way it always was and we're not open to seeing the world through the eyes of the now, and through the eyes of what you would have us to be 
and do for your kingdom's purposes now, then, Lord, I ask you to open our eyes, remove the blinders, remove the scales. May your spirit pour out on us so that we can see what it is you have called us to with absolute clarity, clarity, with a deep conviction that you are calling us to something greater than ourselves. And Lord, that you would give us a deep, deep fear of you. That Lord, uh, uh, honoring you and glorifying you and standing in awe of you would overtake any fear of failure, fear of cost, or fear of change. Because this world is in desperate need of the love and the power and the healing of Jesus Christ. And you have called your church to be the instrument through which that happens. So Lord, raise up your people to live your mission and to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. been using the benediction from Hebrews this series. I'm just going to back up a little bit. Therefore, verse 12, or chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you all with everything good that you all may do his work, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Look forward to seeing you next week as we finish off Nehemiah. And remember, uh, members, we have an AGM at 11 o'clock following the service. So thank you. Go with God and his strength for his glory.